and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies and TV. In this episode we're going to be looking at when Hollywood meets 70s motorsport. But first, Ford versus Ferrari. The big drop around the Indy 500 was the movie trailer for the new film starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale looking at the rivalry of Ford and Ferrari at Le Mans. And I think, Martin, you quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I think my actual notes on this were, squee! I love seeing, <laughs> I love seeing mainstream Hollywood take on motorsport because they make it look so cool. Everything happens at sunset or in extremely crushed blacks. Beautiful people doing beautiful things. It's heightened reality. And any time they put some major movie stars and big budgets behind motorsport, I'm always there. Even if the end result turns out to be rubbish. There is a podcast on the movie Drive where... um, No, sorry, not Drive, Driven. There's a podcast on the movie Driven coming at some point where I explain how it isn't absolute cack. (laughs) It isn't absolute cack. There's like two or three minutes that are quite good. Yeah, (laughs) Ford versus Ferrari. This is telling a really well-known story, but is it well-known outside of, you know, motorsport geekdom? I don't think so. Um, It's a really great story, too, about... Henry Ford II trying to step out from his father's shadow and really put Ford on the map in Europe by trying to buy Ferrari and Ferrari leading him a merry dance and right at the point where Ferrari is about to sign on the dotted line, he backs out at the last second and Ford is pretty pissed about this, if I'm honest. He's pretty unhappy about this and declares that Ford are going to beat Ferrari at Le Mans. And this is that story put on the big screen with Christian Bale as Ken Miles, who was one of the instrumental development drivers and racers on the Ford squad. And Matt Damon is playing uh, Carroll Shelby. He looks a bit young to be playing Carroll Shelby, a bit too fresh-faced and not quite grisly Texan enough, but... I enjoy his Texan accent and, you know, this is what Hollywood does well. It You give the actors who are, and don't quite look like the real person, but through sort of force of personality and great filmmaking and a good accent, you can get away with it. And it looks like it's going to be the kind of tale where, yeah, they'll smooth off the rough edges. I imagine there's going to be some creative license, but I don't mind because we're going to get to see GT40s on the big screen. We're going to see whatever the Ferrari was that they raced against. Sorry, Ferrari fans, I don't care. <laughs> and I have to ask, I, I always think whenever I see Christian Bale acting, and I mean acting with a capital A, which accent is he going to come out with on this? Because is Christian Bale English or is he American? He's English. This is his actual accent. Although there may be some regional, but he's an English actor. So this is an English accent. But he's so well known for doing... Is he playing doing... somebody Essexy? I have no idea. I, my, I'd have my... to go and look at where Ken Miles is from. He's Christian Bale. I'm fairly sure he will have done his research. But I, the accent is far more in his actual accent wheelhouse. But he's so good at doing other accents you, that you would think from all of his American work that he is an American. He's got mm. a sort of flawless yeah. non-regional American accent and, and he does it so often that you forget that actually he's English. True. And what what are they calling it in Britain? Because it's not Ford versus Ferrari, is it? No, they're calling it Le Mans 66, which is a terrible decision. You, Ford v Ferrari is an incredibly strong, emotive title. Everyone's heard of Ford. Everyone's heard of Ferrari. If you're not a motorsport fan, you probably have no idea that they went to war in the 1960s and 70s. Um, So why on earth would you change the title? And maybe it's a legal thing. Maybe Ferrari have gone, I don't know. But I don't see how you can make this movie without the, the endorsement and the blessing of both brands. And also, I think Ferrari... I think that 66, in sporting terms, has a very specific British meaning... And nobody would go, oh, you remember that great battle at Le Mans in 66? Because everyone in Britain thinks about the World Cup. But I don't think about the World Cup at all. Well, but yeah, I get it. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Le Mans 66 is a terrible title. And I, I can only hope that it doesn't stop people going to see the movie. But 
I urge you to get on YouTube, put Ford versus Ferrari into the search box and watch this trailer because it looks great. It does. It really does look amazing. And I I only tangentially know the story, but I'm really excited to see it. I think they've got those really kind of Hollywood beats in it as well that will make it quite gripping and quite exciting. Speaking of trailers, this Sunday sees the first in the new series of Top Gear. New Top Gear? New, new Top Gear? I've lost track of how many news it is. Anyway, it's the new Top Gear with Chris Harris and Freddie Flintoff and Paddy McGuinness, and they've got a new trailer out. And it's... They've finally gone back to the car route, and they've really really push the car side on this to the point that it's almost the Chris Harris show which is no bad thing I also if you have seen it I also want a t-shirt that says I am a chassis enthusiast on it because frankly that is the new I'm a driving god it's good I like it I, I watched this trailer and I think I fired you the link over because you're right they really push the man in car angle there's a lot of Chris Harris there's a lot of stunts and drifting and cool stuff and very little of the two new presenters. I don't know if that's an intentional decision or if this is just the action trailer and when you say action you're going to lean on your stigs and your monkeys to do it for you. Mm. There is also a, a video that's out on the socials with the three of them just sort of having a bit of an interview ask the ask the presenters type chat and it's it it it's reassuring. It comes across quite well. They seem to have a good, pokey, fun sort of rapport going on. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hoping it's between Chris's journalistic bent and some chemistry between the three of them. I'm still, I'm getting increasingly hopeful. I'd forgotten it was on. I'd forgotten it was this Sunday. And yeah, I, it's all about the chemistry. I think we've said it before. It's about the chemistry. If that works, providing they're not going down the very well-worn uh, sort of Top Gear tropes straight away, then mm. if they've got some new ideas and the new team gel together, I'm going to watch it anyway. And I think there's a good portion of the Top Gear-loving public that are going to watch it regardless. And hopefully we won't have that same scenario that we had when the first reboot came along where everyone was quick to jump on the bandwagon of, of criticising it without giving it a chance to get warmed up. And I know oh, yeah. I'm as guilty as the rest of going meh at their first trailer. <laughs> uh, I'm, it's, top, it's new Top Gear. You know, it's, it's new car stuff on the TV. And I'm always going to watch new car stuff on the TV. Yeah, yeah. Aren't we all? Because speaking of which, if you're in the UK, Jethro Bovington's Motor Trend head-to-head is now on Discovery. If you have Sky, I think Channel 125 and whatever is on Virgin, you can now see that stuff on your big telly in half-hour chunks. Which is it old archive stuff? It was series... What was yesterday? Series 8, episode 12, I think. Tell me the cars. E63 wagon and something. Porsche Panamera, I think. I'm that sad. I subscribe to Motor Trend On Demand because it's only a fiver a month, and I like Jethro, um, so I'm quite happy to shell out for it. YouTube is full of people who hate Motor Trend for having gone to a subscription model, but honestly, you've seen you get 20 minutes of these films, mm-hmm. um, four of them, or four of them a month, or maybe two of them a month, I don't know, but they, they, they're really, really good. They're beautifully made. They're very entertaining. You know, Jethro's like Chris Harris and he can make a car go sideways at will he's got real skills behind the wheel and similar skills at distilling a car review into a 20 minute video it's I'd say it's well worth a, a subscription but if it's free on Discovery and you can get some of the back catalogue of, of great reviews not all that have Jethro in um, mm. they sort of have a rotating for a while they had a rotating um, seat alongside Johnny Lieberman Yesterday was the MX-5... I'm reading this from the Sky app. The 2017 Mazda MX-5 Miata RF versus the 2017 Toyota 86. I'm guessing that's a GT86, not the AE86. Johnny Camisa? 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 Yeah. And Johnny Camisa. Yeah, and then it's the other one was Jethro in the E63 versus the Cadillac CTS V sedan. Oh, that's right. He loves uh, Lieberman loves a Cadillac. And the the thumbnail that they've got on the Sky app, and I'm kind of hoping this isn't Photoshop. I'm going to show this to Marty. It is just <laughs> it's it's Jethro doing a burnout in a Dodge Charger, I think, and it looks like 
they're just standing in snow, but it's actually tyre smoke. <laughs> so I think that was the first episode of the current series of Head to Head. I'm that sad. Yeah. God bless them for that. Speaking of car show lineups, if you had a magic Top Gear wand and you said three person lineup, Chris Harris is a given, who are the other two? Henry Catchwell and Jethro Bovington. It, it's, it would be a terribly unentertaining show for the normal viewing public on a BBC Two at 8pm because it'd just be a car geek show. Mm. I mean, I would dearly love to see Henry Catchpole on t- doing the kind of films he likes to do, which are films that tell a story, mm. films that put you in a location for a reason, and the car is sort of not secondary, but it's the it's the, it's the half of the thing. The other half would be the road or the location or the country or the city or uh, the person that maybe lived in the, glo- the on the road or the location. There's, there's always a story with Henry's stuff. And I've always felt that that would be a very cinematic thing to do in the way that Top Gear and latterly the Grand Tour would do with features about um, Jim Clark um, or, you know, with, with other that you mentioned in passing during a feature. Um, Henry Catchpole stuff would be very cinematic but I'm not sure he is suited with his quiet delivery and and sort of overly serious schoolboy tones for Sunday afternoon stroke evening TV entertainment I don't think he could do the kind of thing that Top Gear is now the boisterous boys Mm. having a laugh I would go with and I was thinking about this before we started recording which is why I sprung it on Marty. My The first three I came up with were Jethro Monkey and Harry Catchpole. But I'm going to throw two more names into the mix, and I think Monkey, Alex Goy, who is a great writer and has a great eye for a story, and third, based almost exclusively on his Collecting Cars podcast experience. And if you haven't heard this absolutely go and find the collecting cars podcast and listen to the most recent episode when we're recording this with richard porter so richard porter on camera chris harris and alex goy i think richard porter says in his book that he tried being on camera during old 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 top gear Mm. like the second gen of series after william willard hung up his woolly jumper and they sort of started to do a few more experimental things. He did do a few features in front of the camera and they discovered that he wasn't very good or I think in his own words, you know, sort of gangly spotty teen was was not a riveting on camera presence. So But I th- I think since he started doing um Smith and Sniff, which is also just brilliant. And what was the car? There's a thing that's been on recently, ITV, I think, Car Years or something, where he's like a talking head expert. And it actually, he actually comes across really well. And I'd like to sort of see the three of them, how they would, how they would gel. But I, th- I suspect you may be right. I don't know if he's, if he would be that, that comfortable in that role. But I th- one car journalist is enough for that show. I think having three journalists in the sort of the classic, Clarkson, Hammond and May worked because they were also very different mm. in what they liked and I think if you were to do you know my lineup, they're just going to go well what's the best car 911 GT3 <laughs> move on yeah exactly because they're all they all agree too much mm. and conflict is what makes entertaining television True. if everyone agreed it's very boring so uh, I it's a tricky question I could probably go back and completely revise it I think your idea is pretty good at getting slightly different names in there than the most obvious ones but yeah I don't know I, I'm I'm just waiting to see what this lineup works well while we're waiting for this Sunday in the new series of Top Gear let's talk about Hollywood meets 70s motorsport you're going to kick us off this week Marty with Rush this is the 2013 movie about the 1976 uh, Formula 1 season um and the James Hunt and Nicky Lauder rivalry. Um, this is directed by Ron Howard, who made Apollo 13, amongst other things. It's mostly accurate. It's an enjoyable movie because it gives you, again, mainstream Hollywood 
taking on F1 at a really crucial time in the sport's history. The 1970s popularity began to increase and 1976 was key in opening Formula One up to a broader audience because of this rivalry between James Hunt, the English playboy driving for an English team in McLaren, and Nicky Lauda, the calculating Austrian bad guy driving for Ferrari. We've got Chris Hemsworth playing uh, James Hunt by way of Thor. A little unkind. His his English accent wanders a little to Aussie, and he's clearly worked very hard on on kind of nailing the spirit of James Hunt. It's not an impression, um, but with the combination of sort of attitude and Hemsworth's own, you know, in height and and physique, he reputedly. Um, went on a, a fairly hefty diet to get his weight down to look like a racing driver rather than a Norse god. Um, so, you know, he, he, quite he thinned down. Well, yeah, he, he thinned down enormously for this for this role. Um, you know, he's got, I guess, hair extensions or a wig to, to give the sort of 70s long hair. Um, and we've got Daniel Brühl um, playing Nicky Lauda. And he does far closer to an impression... I think he really works hard to nail Nicky Lauda's particular vocal cadence, very sort of sharp, clipped voice and accent and particular way of saying certain words. And it starts off with James Hunt, the hero, being, you know, all all brilliant in the lower formulae and moving into um, Hesketh. Um, sort of party team. They've got champagne and lobster in the paddock. It's and girls. It's all, and girls. Well, they've got James Hunt um, to bring the girls. And they move through quite quickly to get into the Hunt versus Louder rivalry. Um, it's a really enjoyable movie even if you're not an F1 fan, much like Senna, it's a really good gateway into the sort of stories that Formula One can throw up. I mean, I think famously the the team boss of McLaren at the time, Alistair Caldwell, said that if you were to write a Hollywood script of this, no one would believe it because so much happened in one year. Um, The big push of the story, spoiler alert, is that halfway through the season, Nicky Lauder is leading the world championship against James Hunt and he crashes very badly at the Nürburgring, the genuine Nürburgring, the North Loop, not the uh, not the smaller circuit they race on today. And he is very, very badly burned. And as a result, cannot race. And as a result, James Hunt continues racing and wins more, gains ground in the World Championship, and it sets up to a big denouement. Um, and the whole thing is Hunt versus Lauder, and you're meant to root for James Hunt. And I remember on first viewing of this at the cinema, I came out going, man, Nicky Ladder is a dude. <laughs> he really is. The guy, Daniel Brühl, absolutely steals every scene he's in. And you come out with an enormous respect for what Nicky Ladder achieved because... I have a feeling that the scenes they show of him undergoing treatment and then coming back to race six weeks after his accident, he was back in a Formula One car, which is astonishing given the burns he suffered and you know the, the physical rehabilitation he had to go through. He is easily, for my money, the big hero out of the movie. And James Hunt comes off as more of a caricature. He, he's mm. he's a, not, not quite cartoonish. The way he's written is just very broad strokes. And the real James Hunt, a little more complex. Interestingly, the movie does set them up as sort of opposites. You've got Fire versus Ice, the the British playboy calculating Austrian. And it pits them against them, one another, in a way that isn't strictly realistic. As, as I understand it, they were quite good mates and even shared a flat at some point. So there's there's some Hollywood license here to make the narrative work, but the narrative is excellent and it draws you in. And for motorsport enthusiasts, there's some really good stuff in here. They weren't able to film at all of the circuits that the 1976 season went to for obvious reasons, um, but they do film at some very recognisable circuits. So uh, you'll see places like Brands Hatch standing in for other circuits. Um, Cadwell Park's in there. I think Thruxton probably makes a, a, an appearance as well. They did go to the original Nürburgring and do some filming on the circuit. Um, 
but they weren't able to go everywhere. So if you're an, a nerd, you can spot things like the Druids bend in Braden's Hatch, standing in for a another hairpin. It's it's quite entertaining to watch it in that way and just check off all the things that are inaccurate, but you don't mind. You just let it take you with you. Um, the things I've found quite... That, that lift the movie are the score. Mm-hmm. It's a Hans Zimmer score. as a big name to be attached to a, a motorsport film, and it's a great score. It's a really driving, propulsive score. It's one... One I think that's been overlooked in his recent output, but it's a really good score to underpin a movie about racing. And the other thing, also audio, the editing of the sound for the cars, it's really front and centre. It's its as exaggerated as, as that um, Formula One Drive to Survive documentary on Netflix, only for much better reason, because these are the cars of the 1970s, no turbochargers. This is all raw Cosworth DFVs and it, um, Ferrari V12s and flat 12s. And it sounds amazing. And I'm told that the the editors were quite anal in making sure that the right sound for the, was matched up with the right car so that you do get a genuine representation on screen for people like me who are nerds and will go, well, that's not actually a Cosworth DFE. <laughs> it's really, really good for that kind of thing. And the camera angles are, they're very up close. There's some really interesting angles where they've got, I guess, lipstick cameras underneath the car or in the cockpit. And it's fascinating to watch. There are some bad bits about the movie. Um, they have a, a pre-recorded commentator over the top of a lot of the racing footage whose job is to be Basil Exposition and tell you exactly what's going on on the track in a sort of passe film announcer's voice. And here we are. We have James Hunt in the <laughs> white and red McLaren Marlborough. And opposite, it, it's... <laughs> That's one of your better impressions. That's up there with Statham. <laughs> you joined us here at Brands Hatch. <laughs> yes, it is exactly that kind of um, <laughs> voice. And he is playing Basil Exposition. He's just telling you what's going on. And here we have that car, the red car, overtaking the blue car right there. Did you see it? <laughs> we don't need it. It really doesn't need it. I, I know why it's there. There will be some Hollywood producer going, I've no idea what's going on. We need someone to tell us what's going on. So apart from the commentary... I think virtually everything else about the movie is is hugely enjoyable. And as ever, when it's F1 up on the big screen, it's a joy to see racing cars shown, you know, shot with beautiful 35mm Hollywood cameras and and shown in their best possible light. Um, I know that they didn't use the actual cars that were raced during that season for the racing. They are apparently Formula Vauxhall and uh, Lotus and Ford single-seaters with body kit on, you you don't you'd go with that wouldn't you you didn't want oh, yeah. someone to crash a virtually priceless McLaren M23 um, or the Ferrari uh, 312 that Lauda was racing I think they do use them for static shots because obviously you, there's detail that you can um, see when the car is stationary that are absolutely meaningless when it's mo- in motion um, there's some great driving there there's an interesting story about one of the stunt drivers is a racing driver called Sean Edwards mm. whose father Guy Edwards was racing in F1 alongside Lauda uh, back in the day and and so his son was the stunt driver for Rush and shortly after finishing the movie was very very tragically killed in an accident out um, in Australia mm. yeah uh, but it was a wonderful little bit of synchronicity of him playing the part of his dad in the same car that his dad was driving. And in fact, there's actually one scene where they're inside the driver's briefing and they I can't remember what the dialogue was, but Sean Edwards is in that playing his dad and he's actually recognisable on, on camera. Yeah, the the driving in it is is done by a team called Driving Wizards. Um which is a great name for a company. <laughs> they did an awful lot of prep. The budget for this movie was very, very small. Mm. It, it really made the most of every dollar. I think they had something around the region of $30 million coming from an awful lot of sources. Mm. Um, it wasn't a single studio funding this by any means. And they make it work. It really it's stretched so that they can 
visit all these locations and produce all the CG to fill in the background so that Cadwell Park doesn't look like Cadwell Park. It looks like some circuit over in Austria or however, you know, recreating the old Nürburgring that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the old pit, that complex is just gone. So they, they really, really made the money work. And so I think they did an awful lot of pre-visualization with this company driving with us to work out what cars they'd need, how they could film in the most cinematic way. And it really, really shows it's unrealistic depictions of Formula One racing. The camera is super close. It swoops in and around places it, you wouldn't be able to get a camera during real racing. But it works for Hollywood. And there's some great camera angles of, of over the top of engines where you can see the whole thing shuddering and shaking and you've got all your inlet trumpets. It's magnificent for, for petrolhead geeks everywhere. Um, and like I say, you start watching the movie and you think James Hunt is the brilliant guy and you you genuinely come out of the movie going Nicky Lauda is the man of this movie and God rest his soul yep yep very sad that he's he's passed recently but given the extent of his injuries it's amazing the life that he's had since then so I think if you're going to have a tribute on on celluloid I think Rush is a pretty good one to have he really liked it too he was he was um extremely complimentary of the movie he met with the filmmakers an awful lot he met with Daniel Brühl the guy who was playing with him in the movie a lot um, he he had total sign off on it and he said it's extremely accurate it's it's very good he really liked it um, so I suspect he also saw the fact that he came out of it the hero <laughs> it's a crying shame that James Hunt is is long departed because I suspect he would have enjoyed seeing it too but yeah it's a it's a great Formula One Hollywood movie uh, there aren't very many of those. It's a very narrow niche, but it's a really enjoyable thing. Proof that Ron Howard is a, a great populist filmmaker. Um, and again, if you want to get a member of your family into motorsport or into Formula One, you could do worse than showing them this and going, this is where it all came from. This is where the British love for F1 was, was forged on a grand scale mm. when you've got um, an Englishman going for the world title. Very true. So going from 70s recreated to an original 70s icon, really, for this episode I've decided to go with the 1971 film Le Mans, famously starring Steve McQueen. And I only watched this for the first time a couple of years ago, and it surprised me for a number of reasons, and I, I kind of stepped away from it, and I've watched it again last night getting ready for this and it it surprised me again the story is very very simple it is steve mcqueen plays michael delaney who is a porsche factory driver goes to le mans and races ferrari that is the story of the film it starts off with Steve McQueen driving through some of the gorgeous countryside around Le Mans, driving through the middle of town, and he stops at a point where it becomes apparent the previous year a Ferrari driver had a big accident and was killed. And he's got this pensive look on his face when he's considering his own mortality and he's considering what happened, and then he goes off to the paddock. And going into this film, I really expected a very much sort of by-the-numbers hero and villain story and characters developing and overcoming adversity and all this sort of thing. And it's absolutely not what I expected. It's come somewhere between a documentary and a film, and there's reams of stories about arguments with producers and directors and writers even because they wanted to put story on top of the race whereas in reality the dialogue in it is hugely sparse it literally goes from uh, from scrutineering in the square at Le Mans through practice through the start of the race and the film ends just after the champagne's been sprayed and it's almost dialogue free it almost plays as a silent movie you can watch it without audio and what the writers have done is they've draped a couple of elements across the top so it's worth saying that this was a lot of this was actually filmed at the 1970 running of Le Mans so you see footage of the actual race the actual crowds all of that sort of thing 
and they have overlaid a story on top so the race result doesn't quite match what actually happened. But then you've got the widow of this character who dies in the first sort of three minutes of the film. She's there the following year, and her and Steve McQueen's character have this kind of awkward relationship between the two of them. And Steve McQueen doesn't talk very much. He has one famous speech about ten minutes from the end, which is the... Um, oh, I can't even remember it now. It's that famous. It's the, you know, racing his life and everything else is just waiting. But other than that, there's a lot of him just walking around, being pensive and moody and sort of looking off into the distance. And even through the first sort of half hour, 40 minutes, there's no actual dialogue. It becomes this kind of visual documentary and this visual montage of what Le Mans is. It encapsulates the event rather than the character or the cars. It has these shots of the square getting ready. It has the police getting ready. It has the Le Mans train station where the first carriage load of um, fans turns up and starts filling the filling the um, platform. It has some of the most incredibly French things you can imagine. There is honestly one shot that's a baguette cellar with a sort of pile of baguettes on one side and a pile of sausages on the other. And it then cuts to these two French people sitting in a tent pouring a glass of wine into jam jars and men playing ball. And it is... But it is it is just capturing the spirit and what goes on and what people do at Le Mans. And Are those men wearing a stripy top with it, berets? It doesn't have a man on a bicycle with onions around his neck or a stripy <laughs> jumper and a beret. But it is, it's, it's beautifully of the period and it's beautifully capturing the spirit and the. it's very evocative of the whole event because even the pacing of the film as it goes on has that anticipation in the build-up. It actually has what we mentioned in the last episode with the Netflix documentary, where you have the um, all the sound drops out at the start and you hear sort of heartbeats and the lights go green and all these cars roar off. And then you kind of get the... the you even get these, these um, bits of dialogue where you were saying about how, how you have the PA being the exposition. And in this, they, they have it, but it's really pushed back in the mix. And you see these shots where everyone's sort of on the grid milling about, and there's one car in bits, and there's engineers talking to mechanics, and, me and drivers pointing at things, and even the driver changes. They have that... Um, you don't hear what the drivers are saying. You kind of have that sense of something being mumbled and, th you know, the driver steering wheel mime going on. But it's all just, apart from what's going on the PA, it's all in the editing, it's all in the filming, it's all in how people are, are walking and talking and responding and all this sort of thing. And it never really changes. It's it carries on this almost silent mentality, apart from a few scenes to try and establish characters, that there's no real dialogue, there's no real character arcs, there's no real progression in the people because it's all about the event and it's just capturing what it's like to be at Le Mans. The, it does have a bit of a lull in the third act, almost like if you go to a 24-hour race, you get that kind of Sunday morning, the end's in sight, but we're not quite there, kind of sense of... Uh, and that's the one point where they start adding crashes in and people start having bumps and there's this one big set piece with a, a very, very big accident, but it feels like it's kind of there to fill that lull. But then once you get over that, you then start getting towards the finish and again it starts kind of ramping up the tension. And it never really overplays the driver's interaction. They're all very very relaxed in the car. They're very concentrated, as they would be. It's worth noting that Steve McQueen actually didn't do any of the driving. He wanted to, but he couldn't get insurance to do it. But there's a lot of, I'm guessing, rear projection of him sort of sat in the car, glancing at the rearview mirror and the car being rocked. And there's a lot of those sorts of shots. But again, they have a kind of stillness where you've got the the stillness of the drivers and their 
their lack of movement and their lack of um, expression, really, because they're so focused on the task, while the cars are fishtailing through the corners and they're... The external shots are really, really good. It's a combination of footage they got during the race, and they actually ran cameras through, practice through, qualifying through the race, and they shot the 24 hours of the 1970 running. They've got stuff that they shot afterwards. They apparently rented the track for like 12 weeks and were then doing extra pickup shots, some of which you notice, some of which you actually don't until you start watching the, the DVD extras. They have that real sense of the speed of the cars, the bumps in the road. This is also the 1970s layout, so it doesn't have the Porsche curves. It doesn't have as big of a chicane complex at the end. It's a, that great run down the Mulsanne. And it's the great run from uh, from Mulsanne corner down to Indianapolis, and then you basically then got a clear run pretty much back to the, the paddocks, and you can see the cars are moving, they're loud, they're difficult to drive. They are also gorgeous. The Ferrari 512, uh, it's it's no P34, but it's, it's evocative. The Golf Livery 917K, long tail though, is just one of the most iconic cars and it's this it's that simplicity of shape and it's ah i love it to bits it's not my era by any stretch of the imagination but having the noise having the size they're oddly big cars and i think having them shorn of all of those little winglets and flips and diffusers and all that sort of stuff when the car comes into the pits, you actually see the mechanics like lifting the rear subframe up so they can get a jack underneath it and just manhandling these poor cars. You say they're big. I'm pretty sure if you were to park a 917 well, next to a 919 Evo or the yeah, Toyota TSO 50, they'd actually look pretty small. I've seen the photos of the the skeleton of the 917. Mm. There's not a lot there. The driver's feet are coming off. If you're going to drive oh. that thing into the barriers, you are you're going to get a broken ankle at the very least. It's it's properly scary, isn't it? It's it's horrific. But I think it's that head-on shot where you see how big the bubble is, and it's got these rear haunches and the way that the rear, like the long tail section, goes up. I think they yeah. look probably quite a bit bigger than the canopy sort of belies. But all the way through this film, it's still it's all about the race. It's all about the cars. Steve McQueen's performance is quite odd, and I'm, I haven't seen a lot of Steve McQueen stuff, but he's very withdrawn, he's very moody, it's all about looks, it's all about him being pensive. He's never bombastic, he's never loud. He has, I think he literally smiles once at the end of the film. But he keeps catching the eye of the, again, this, this driver who was killed in the previous year's running and whose widow is there for some reason. And it it kind of overlays this sense of the danger and the mortality of the drivers that they were all very aware that not only were the cars themselves dangerous, but the response wasn't what it is now. So there's this sense of the sort of gladiatorial where it's the, uh, the danger of the cars against the heroicness of the drivers. And my God, those cars look like a handful. They really do. Very physical to drive, I think. Oh, very. Oh, without a doubt. I think it's it's an it's a very interesting film to watch, and I think part of the reason is that there is so much of the racing footage, and also they did a lot, given that it was the 1970s, or literally 1970, to have a 917 camera car for a, uh, some of the pickup shots. They actually entered a 908 that was Steve McQueen's with three cameras rolling, and the camera car would have to pit every 15 minutes for them to change the film rolls. But it was actually out there during the race, and it clocked up 282 laps over the course of 24 hours running about a quarter of a million feet of film through these three cameras. Wow. I knew this movie made a loss. It was quite a big flop because it was such a vanity project for McQueen. But now you start to see where all that money went. Oh, and can you can you imagine now Toyota going, we want to run a, a third car in the race as a qualified 
running entry. Like, why? Because we want to stick cameras on it. And there, there's, there's some stuff, and you can tell where the actual race footage is and where they did the pickup stuff, simply because there's there's one shot where they have the camera on the back of the 9, 917, you can see the engine fan going and all that sort of thing. You can see some of the like the really close tracking shots, again, towards the end of the film, obviously couldn't have been done in camera during the race but the race footage that it does have is is just beautiful and again it's really evocative because it is just so unfiltered it's so unblemished by kind of commerciality and the story actually pays no attention whatsoever to the other cars it's all about the 917s versus the Ferraris. That's it. There are Porsches on track, there are all sorts of other cars and prototypes. No heed is given to them whatsoever. It's all about these two these two entrants. And I think that as a piece of filmmaking and as a piece of kind of automotive art, it's a really interesting project, the likes of which I'm not sure you could ever do because people want much more these days you can play they want story they want story they want characters they want an arc they want the the hero to be to go on a journey to you know maybe to be the underdog maybe to be the you know the returning hero god we're back into driven again it's all the cliches in one film but it's not like that at all it's a great thing to watch i think if you know your motorsport if you have been to a big 24-hour race if you've been to le mans just as this time capsule that doesn't shy away from that doesn't just focus on the glossy bits it doesn't just focus on the cars it doesn't just focus on this it will show you people sleeping on a park bench at two in the morning on sunday under a ferris wheel it shows you the you know the paddocks it shows you what the teams go through it shows you just the whole lamar experience and it's beautiful and especially the hd transfer if you get the blu-ray is a really clean, vibrant cut that I think really brings it to life as well. I know what, I'm going to be ordering this now. If you've totally sold it on me, I haven't watched this movie for five, six years. And even then, I think I have a feeling I'd you know, had a big dinner and probably a glass or two of something. And I fell asleep somewhere quite close to the beginning I'm ashamed to say I have seen it through all the way once mm. but it was a very long time ago and I can remember thinking like you say the bits where they cut to the pickup stuff that isn't in the race were very jarring to me because they had a need to tell a story through motion of cars they need to see so and so blocking somebody else and mm. it becomes patently obvious that that didn't happen in the mo- in the film in the actual race rather but this makes me want to go back and watch it because I love Le Mans documentaries. And I'd be very interested to contrast this against my favourite Le Mans documentary, the Audi-produced Truth in 24 mm. from back in 2008, which we'll go into on a future episode of the Automovie podcast. But I, I want to watch them back to back now because it does sound very much like I could watch this like a documentary that happens to have Steve McQueen in the back of a few mm. shots. And I would almost say if you went back and edited it now, there are there's one scene about forty minutes in with one of the other Porsche drivers talking to I'm guessing his wife. The audio mix isn't brilliant. I'm not entirely sure what they said, and I don't think it really made much difference to my enjoyment of it. I think you you could literally play it as a silent documentary, apart from the last sort of conversation that Steve McQueen has, because that is a bit more about why do you do it? What draws you to it? Why do you take the risks of doing something which has killed my husband? Why keep doing it? Why not stop it? And then you get into the Steve McQueen, well, you know, you, you race because you have to race, and if you're not racing, then you're just waiting for the next chance to race. And there is this, this like I say, there is this melancholy that goes through it, even right at the very end, where I think, if I remember rightly, I think Steve McQueen's car in the uh, in the movie, not in the in the actual race, but in the movie, finishes on the podium, and he kind of walks away like he just wants his next fix. Like I say, as a documentary, as a capsule of the glorious seventies, absolutely, it's worth a watch. 
as a tribute to Le Mans as an event, it's absolutely worth a watch. It makes you realise that Formula One in particular doesn't have an event like this. There is the Indy 500, there is Le Mans. I honestly don't think that Formula One has anything that can capture this, but I think this movie does a really good job of just showing what the whole event is like. And if you don't watch it for any other reasons, the haircuts and the sideburns and the fashion is just fantastically 70s alone. That is worth the price of admission. There you have it. Watch Le Mans for the massive flares. <laughs> you honestly can. All right, well, that was Le Mans. And now we've got what's on the web this week. Do you want to go first? I will. I will carry on, actually, from my from my Le Mans experience. Because watching that, it made me think of a film that I saw online many, 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 many years ago. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have watched it, will have forgotten all about it. And it was called 24 Hours in 19,500 Frames, which was produced by a company called Stereo Screen in 2010 at the Nürburgring 24 Hour. And it follows... The, it's the same th- sort of format almost as Le Mans. It's 20 minutes long. And it was, I think, when the Canon 5D Mark II first really came out. So it was the first small-form video SLRs that could do really shallow depth of field, but also do low light and could also be really kind of unintrusive. And it follows the story of the 2010 running of the Nürburgring 24-hour with a bit of focus on... um, I was going to say Team Sherman. It's not Team Sherman. It's Team... Schubert? Schubert? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, whoever it is. And it can t- it, it's really good at telling the story of the race just through pictures, through not even too much on-track action, but it, it really gets into the pits. It really sees people close up. It sees the pit stops close up. It It's beautifully shot. It looks a little bit dated now, in hindsight, I think the the colour grading and the uh, the colourisation of it now looks a little bit clichéd, but it also has this gorgeous, um, it also has this gorgeous sort of melodic soundtrack that drifts you along through the whole film, and it's it's really just a lovely thing to sort of go back to and fish out of those river of memories and enjoy all over again. I have seen this, I'm pretty sure, uh, quite a while ago. I'm going to have to go back and, and watch it again. Um, having been to the Nürburgring 24, I, I want to go back and watch this because I've been to the Nürburgring 24-hour race a couple of times around that kind of time. And so I think I'm going to recognise a bunch of the cars, the whole atmosphere of it is going to feel like it did back then. The race has changed a little bit now. It's become very manufacturer-driven rather than team-driven, so you've got fully manufacturer backed entries from BMW and Porsche going for outright honours with incredible rosters of drivers driving at maximum pace the whole time it's far faster and slightly more dangerous than it used to be Um, and it feels a little bit more corporate and less like the little magical secret 24 hour race Um, so I want to go and rediscover this because I really really enjoyed those trips to the Nürburgring 24 and every time I see anything about it I think I really want to go back it's a really great event It's it's a little more accessible than Le Mans it's a hell of a lot cheaper than Le Mans um, and and yeah, I, this this sounds like it's a good little, like you say, another time capsule of what it was like to go to a twenty four hour race in the early two two thousand and tens. Is that what we yeah, call them? 20, uh, yeah, twenty ten. Early twenty. Yeah, yeah. in the early twenty tens. Um, my content item this week is a slightly topical a Chris Harris video he drives the McLaren Senna and compares it to McLaren's own 650S GT3 race car I think this comes off the back of some claims I'm not sure if they came from McLaren or other people that the McLaren Senna their um, hypercar named after Ayrton Senna is faster around a circuit than a GT3 race car I think this has rankled with Chris Harris quite a lot. This feels like he got out a soapbox and wanted to put this to bed. And I remember watching it. It's a very entertaining. It's beautifully shot as ever. 
um, the team from Grit Productions and doing a, a great job of what I suspect was a pretty rush, rush job filming it all. Um, what bothered me a little bit about this was how on earth are McLaren going to react to this? Because it feels very much like a pot shot mm. of, no guys, your lovely new hypercar is actually not as quick as a GT3 car around center, uh, around a circuit. Spoiler alert, that is what happens. I really should stop spoiling these things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Chris Harris races uh, in the Blanc Pan. Uh, he has raced a McLaren 650S GT3. I'm not sure if he's racing that or something else this year, but, you know, he's familiar with this car. And so he can extract a fairly representative lap time of it uh, out of it around Silverstone. Um, it's very obvious in the center that it's very quick down the straights and is incredibly grip limited in the corners because road tires just can't cope with the kind of pace it's capable of generating um like i say it, it's a it's a fun thing to watch and to see the difference between uh, a really really fast road car around a circuit and a race car around a circuit driven by the same driver on the same day around the same circuit configuration it's sort of a foregone conclusion a race car on slicks is nearly always going to outpace a road car just simply because of the kind of grip it can generate in the corners and that's where all the time is lost on the road car but it, it left me feeling like is is this made with mclaren's blessing is that a press car no it's not it's actually a car that belongs to a friend of his so what are they going to feel like when they see this and it's effectively a diss i don't know it's it's entertaining watching and maybe you know mclaren have taken it in good humor and gone yeah you know actually they're not as fast but it's still pretty damn close except it's not it's like seven seconds slower <laughs> um but what's seven seconds between friends i think the other great thing about that video though is that since chris harris is now a noted chassis enthusiast he can actually articulate really well what the differences are between the two cars and how they feel, where they gain and lose time relative to each other. So I think it it's... I get where you're coming from with the idea of it being a, a diss towards McLaren, but I think he can articulate his arguments well enough that hopefully they will see the value in it. I think anybody who's who's into cars can get something from this. And it properly does fall into that BBC remit of to educate, entertain and inform. I think it's a really interesting film and I think the fact they can do that as a bit of a side hustle on YouTube I think is is brilliant. But yes, definitely well worth a watch and we'll put links to both of these videos in the show notes along with this episode. But that's it for now. If you think we've got it right or got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutomoviePod, on our Automovie Podcast Facebook page or email us at comments at moviepodcast.com.